And for those of you who are downstairs here with you, please open your Bibles. You will remember last week, we're talking about the Bible, right? And so we looked at part one last Sunday, and I asked you to open your Bibles, and where would we possibly start looking at the Bible? And it would be, of course, in the beginning, right? Which would be Genesis chapter one. And that's where we were, and we looked at a number of things. The uh, videos are online. You might want to check that out to learn about that message. But today we will be beginning in another area. So have your Bibles ready. I'm not going to give it away right away. So, but those of you who have uh, been to Sunday school and have passed the flannel graph test, you will know where we're going this morning because it is the other major in the beginning in the Bible. Right? Right. So I want to play for you one more time as a reprise from last Sunday, just to set the mood and get us back on track here this morning. A video clip that we played last week uh, from a group of people from London, England, man on the street interviews of uh, young men and women who were being asked a simple question about the Bible and as part of the Alpha Course. And so here we go. Let's watch this one more time. Have I ever read the Bible? No. I haven't read the Bible. For my own reasons, no. I've skimmed it. I have read the Bible. I kind of looked at little segments, but I've never actually attempted to read, read the whole thing. <laughs> it's not advertised enough but I don't go to church so the time when I do read it is when I'm in church but other than that like, I don't have a copy of the Bible. But, yeah. They're interesting stories like as a guide for people how to live not necessarily taken literally. I thought it was daunting. It's just it's been a long time so I don't really remember everything. Story of Adam and Eve. Yeah Adam and Eve. Like stories about uh, Jesus yeah. and his life. Of, there. of course there's Genesis. I don't know the difference between sort of like the different books and stuff. Um, but I do know Genesis is the first one. Or is that an argument? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like I said last week, I really liked that guy. I was watching it again this week in preparation. And I like one of his other lines he used, I've skimmed it. <laughs> How do you skim the Bible? Okay, anyway. And then there was the other gal on there. Well, it's not advertised enough. Really? As an ex-marketing advertising guy, I'm like, well, we could fix that. Couldn't we? So that's uh, one of the reasons, actually, why we're doing this book. I mentioned last week a few reasons. I just want to recap them for you, and especially for those of you who weren't here, but just a little bit of a recap as to why we might be doing this mini-series. The impetus uh, for me personally became, because usually we do a, a series the last two weeks of Sundays called The Church, a little bit of a recap, et cetera, of who we are as a church. That's one of the reasons why we're doing it. But I, I had read a book, recommended a book for summer vacation for you as a recommended reading uh, the book was called, is called, Not What You Think, Why the Bible Might Be Nothing We Expected But Everything We Need. And this book is written by a, a married couple, um, the McAfee's, uh, pardon me, Michael and Lauren, who have uh, biblical seminary degrees, awesome couple. They are, quote, and they mention this profusely in their book, they are millennials. Like they're 30, 31 when they wrote this book. And so the impetus for them for writing the book uh, was twofold. One is they had a lot of non-Christian friends um, that they had met through university life and of course in regular life in, in work and, and, and uh, coffee shops, et cetera. And th their, their concern was is that many of their friends had strong opinions about the Bible, mostly negative, right? But their opinions were based on something like we saw in this video clip. Most of them have never really read it for themselves. They'd heard quotes. They'd heard others who were, of course, rather critical of the Bible. And so they, they really wanted to write something, not just for them, but also for those who want to reach them. 
which would be you and I, right? I want to be able to reach that generation. Secondly, though, they wrote it because they, they also were noticing in their particular generation a great number of young men and women who were getting at university education, who were certainly online, who were beginning to buckle to the pressure of the culture's attitudes and the prevailing attitudes and views and current hot topics of our culture, buckling to what the Bible teaches about I, things like, for example, human identity and, of course, sexuality. Anybody read about those recently online? Or, uh, those hot topics or what today? But they wanted to write this because they, they really, really were concerned about many of their friends who were um, buckling to pressure, buckling to pressure. So for me, I found this book speaks to our very cultural moment in several ways, not just to that generation, every generation. We're all rebels, right? We've all bucked authority, right? We've all questioned things, including the Bible. And so I think this book and the idea behind it is helpful if we genuinely hope to reach this generation today, every generation, with, listen, the Bible. I don't know what else you've got, but that's all I've got is the Word of God. And Christian, that's what we've got. It's the Word of God. So you see the mistake we could make, and frankly, we see it happening all the time, is that we could devise really wonderful strategies, you know, to try to reach this generation, you know, really funky, awesome worship, which we have, but we could get smoke machines, right? And we could, we could really amp it up and turn it into an experience, right? And we, we could talk more about, you know, life and, 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 you know, struggles and careers and marriage and on and on, and not necessarily from the Bible. We could minimize that, the teachings of the Bible, or... We could simply seek ways to reinterpret Scripture to align with the culture's prevailing views and current hot topics, like I've said, human identity and sexuality. Well, listen, um, even for those people that we saw in the video clips and anyone that you will talk to on the streets or in your office or wherever it might be, if you honestly talk to them, listen, they know what the hot topics of the Bible are, and they don't agree with the Bible, and they don't like the Bible on that basis. It's understandable. It is understandable. And so what are we going to do about it? Are we going to buckle? And so for them, for most people in our world today, the Bible then is dismissed as a couple of things. It's archaic. It's outdated. It's patriarchal. I mean, you name it. There are all kinds of ways to describe the Bible. Uh, a well-known theologian that most of you uh, maybe don't know because he's passed away, but he was a great writer and theologian. His name is Mark Twain. Anybody know him as a theologian? Right? He said this. He said, most people are bothered by those passages in Scripture which they cannot understand. Creation, evolution. But as for me, I have always noticed that the passages which troubled me most are those which I do understand. I used to really like Christopher Hitchens, uh, he's passed away, uh, renowned atheist, um, didn't really like Christians or the Bible very, very much, um, but he was a very honest man in, in the sense that, you know, he would have people come to him and go, well, the Bible didn't really, and he, he would stop them in his tracks because he was well-educated, good reader, and he'd go, that's nonsense. I have read the Bible. It says that that is sin. Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard also once said this, there are two ways to be fooled. One is to believe what isn't true. The other is to refuse to believe what is true. 
This cultural moment we are in right now is, and, and again, I don't have time this morning, we don't have time to unpack it, all that, that it is. Mo many of you are well-educated, you're, you're aware of what's going on. It's getting, anybody, confusing? Confusing? People are looking for answers. They're looking for answers. So some of the reasons that I mentioned last week why we're doing this, well, number one was this is, for us as a rock church, every year before we go into our fall season, it's kind of like a reboot. Right, it's a little bit, okay, why are we the church? Why do we do this? Why do we gather on Sunday? Why do we do missional community groups? But it's also intended a, a series like this for those of you who are new with the Rock Church, who have been visiting over the last six months, maybe over the summer, and are wondering in your mind, will I keep coming here? And, and so one of the reasons why we do this is we, we, wanna, we want you to know exactly who we are as a church. And like I said last week, really the second reason is we want you to know that we are a Bible-teaching and Bible-believing church, full stop. Every Sunday, I get up here or whoever's preaching gets up here, we open the Bible, we read a text, and we talk about it. And sometimes when we talk about it, it's really fun and encouraging and it's awesome and it's really, you know, up, uppity, and sometimes it's pretty difficult. But it's the Word of God. And so that's what we do. Thirdly, uh, we wanted to do this for the skeptic. I mean, Come on, I used to be a skeptic. I still am skeptical of many things. Many of you are, are skeptics. And, and so we want people to not just be like, well, I've skimmed it or I've heard something about it, but, but actually read it. We want to encourage you that you could read this and, and, and you could read it with us and it would be really, really beneficial for you. And a fourth reason is, again, I, I've alluded to is because of the one thing that I, I'm concerned about as a pastor and uh, just as a Christian in this world today, and that is the, the, uh, the, the attack that the Bible is under today in our culture. And listen, it's not, it's not, my concern is not so much the culture. It's the, the attack that's coming from within the church. As I showed you last week with a little illustration, I mean, there's reams and reams and reams of theologians and authors and commentators who've written about the doctrine of the Word of God, about the Bible, the how to interpret the Bible for centuries. And then someone comes along with a book about that thick and it becomes quite popular because basically what they're saying is, yeah, all these guys got it wrong. Especially about those big deal cultural issues. But finally, as I said last week, my ultimate goal is, our ultimate goal is, really want you to read your Bible, really want you to go there and discover for yourself how life-changing, life-giving the Bible really is. So last week we looked at the Bible as the story of God. And again, I would encourage you, if you haven't uh, seen that message, you could watch it online on our YouTube channel. This week I want to talk to you about the fact that the Bible is the very Word of God. So our outline for today is the Bible, the Word of God, and I hope to show you these three things. The Word always was, the Word is life, and the Word is the authority. I hope you can see that little play on that as we get to that in our conclusion. Let me pray for us one more time as we dive in. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you again so much for this day. Lord, I thank you for every person here person watching. Lord, I thank you that you care deeply about every one of us. That is why you have spoken. That is why you have given us your word 
spoken and written and in the flesh, your Son, Jesus Christ. So we thank you so much. I pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, I pray today, speak through me in my weakness. Speak with power and strength to every heart here today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So number one, the Word always was. So once again, I think we saw in our video clip that it would seem that most people, most people have heard of Genesis. I made a crazy statement last week that I believe in the uh, English-speaking world. You could try to prove me wrong. That'd be awesome. Do a survey for yourself. But I believe in my heart of hearts that every person in the, um, the English-speaking word has heard the words, in the beginning, God. And that it comes from the book of Genesis, which means literally beginnings. But it's interesting that most people don't know that there's another in the beginning in the Bible. That's critically important for us to understand the first in the beginning, the story of God. So anybody who's the uh, theologian here today, anybody know where we're going to find and go to this morning, the other in the beginning in the Bible? (laughs) There's a lot of potential Sunday school teachers here. This is awesome. Sign up today, please. Yes, open your Bibles to John chapter 1, and we are going to read, I'm going to read, just read for for you the first five verses, and as I'm reading them, could I ask you, remember Genesis 1 as we're reading these words, and and in in whatever you can recall of Genesis 1, in the beginning beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering, moving over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. John 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, And the darkness has not, will not overcome it. So last week we saw in Genesis 1 that the story of God begins with the word, in the beginning, God, the Hebrew word Elohim. Fascinating word. It's a plural word. Right from the beginning, we're given some hints as to who this God of the Bible is. He's a plurality. And then we read about the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. And finally, someone speaks. God communicates, God speaks and says, let there be light. And it was, and is also remarkable to see that the Bible's account of creation goes from, we saw this last week, from darkness, a formless void of emptiness, and then light. And it records each day as being, and there was evening and morning the same day. Still, I know some of you came up to me afterwards and goes, that's That's remarkable. A day in our minds would be morning and evening. And so this is, this is one of the validations of Scripture, that it's inspired by God, revealed to Moses to write it the way it happened. Because that's odd. <laughs> but that again tells us something about who God is. He brings light into darkness. And that's who Jesus is, light coming into our darkness. Later on the sixth day, when God creates man and woman, we hear God speaking again. And we saw that plurality when He said, let us... Make man in our image after our likeness. And so that plurality, we learned, 
is, is even present in the very beginning of the Scripture. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's there. He's there. Moses didn't know it. The early Israelites didn't really realize that. Oh, they knew the Elohim was plural, but the Trinity, triune God, even this, to this day, if you speak to a Jewish person in Israel or anywhere on the planet, they'd go, not buying that, because, of course, they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. But, of course, this reality doesn't become clear until the story of God unfolds throughout the Old Testament. The hints are there. We're going to see some of that today. And then becomes dramatically clear with the arrival of the Word, Jesus Christ. So we know from Genesis that the act of creation for God was accomplished through His Word. It was spoken into very existence. In fact, we read in Hebrews 1 that He, Jesus, upholds the universe by the power of His Word. I remember studying Hebrews for the first time and getting to passages like that, and particularly that verse, Hebrews 1.3, I believe it is, and thinking that that's incredible. Do you realize this very moment, the next heartbeat you have, sorry, it just happened, is in His hand. Every breath. The sun coming up tomorrow, it's not a fluke of nature. It's God's will. It's within His power. Read the Bible. Might sound like airy fairiness, but if you read the Bible, it will start to make sense, especially if the Holy Spirit illuminates your mind. So let's look at this in the beginning now here in John. First two verses go this way In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So I know for, for a lot of people, um, myself included, when I first read this, it would, at first blush, first reading, you would think that this is, well, this is, this is a repeat of the Genesis in the beginning, right? It's just, it's an expansion of that, or it's a little, no, <laughs> actually no. Uh, th this would be better seen as a prologue, a prologue to what happened before Genesis 1 would be the better way to see it. John the Apostle was a very well-educated man. He was one of the earlier, earliest followers of Jesus, and it's known through history that he was very well educated, not only in, in Jewish uh, religious Torah, Jewish faith, and Jewish tradition, so he was well respected amongst his Jewish brothers and sisters, but also he was well uh, educated in the Greek language and also in the secular Gentile culture. And, and it's, it's clear, again, from commentators and theologians that the way he writes, John, if you read John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, very similar in their style. John's very different. Very different writer, very different uh, exposition of who Jesus is. Same consistent things, but his language in the Greek is considered very high-level Greek and profound, quite frankly. So his use of, in the opening sentence is considered, as I'm alluding to, a masterpiece of simplicity, simplicity and, let, and yet absolute complex thought. One of the Scripture's most profound theological statements, many theologians would say, about who Jesus is. St simply stated, he's saying this, Jesus was always existing, has always existed, from all eternity as God in perfect fellowship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. The actual key word, I mean, we look at this text and you look at the word, word, which I've highlighted here, right? And so people think that's the key word. Well, it is. 
But there are two other key words. One of them is used more often than the word word. It's going to get a little repetitive here, so bear with me. It's the word was. The word was is incredibly important in this text. Because again, in our English translate, was, okay, like past tense. Actually, the literal Greek would be translated was continuing. So let me put it back to you for you on screen, what it would be literally in the Greek, what we would read in a Greek New Testament, how it would, would be reading in that way in the English, it would be this. In the beginning was continuing the Word, and the Word was continuing with God, and the Word was continuing God. He was continuing in the beginning with God. So it sounds, I, I realize, sounds weird, a bit awkward, and that's why our translators make it a little simpler, right? So that we will be able to read it and go, good, I can, I can take it from here. But it's important. It's important because it establishes something clear about Jesus and that he is two things, eternal, always was, is, and always will be. And he's God. He is God. But there's also another word, little tiny word. It's the word with. It's the word with. With God, was with God. And that word, again, it, it has a, it's a beautiful Greek word that John would know, that his Jewish brothers and sisters would particularly appreciate. That it, I'm making up an English word here, but it would be like towardness, right? It would be like um, face-to-faceness. It, it, it speaks to the fact that they were in a loving relationship, that there was a unity. That's what it means by being with God. He was face-to-face -face with God. And so we go on in verse 3, and John tells us this, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Bold statement, bold statement, but it's a little bit like Moses in Genesis 1, isn't it? In the beginning, God, emphatic statement, no debate, no discussion. I'm laying out for you the truth. He will give us more things to think about. The Greek word that's used there, of course, is the word logos. I mentioned last week that I have about 2,200 books uh, that I don't read every week. I'm not that scholarly, uh, but those are my re references and resources that most pastors use today. It's a computer software product called Logos. Simply means the word, right? Um, but in this case, this Greek word clearly is a person. And that person, John is saying to the Jew and the Gentile, the Jew and the Greek, that person has the power to create everything that there is. And he, and he has, listen, used that power. John's use of language here is really profound, and, and it, it's beautiful because it informs both his Jew and his Gentile audience. Jews already knew that Elohim created the heavens and the earth, right? They knew that. I mean, read the Psalms. It's all about the creation of the heavens and the earth. The Jewish people knew that their Elohim God did that. The Greeks, on the other hand, they preferred two things in order to come to belief. One was logic, which comes from the word logos, and the other was reasoning. They, they had to be, 
Everything had to be logical and reasoned out for them before they were going to place their faith or trust anything. And so John is doing that here in a beautiful and simple way. So that's our point number one for you this morning. The Word always was. This Word in John 1, who is Jesus Christ, always was. Before the foundation of the world, He was. Point number two, the Word is life. John goes on and completes the verses that we're looking at this morning and saying this, in Him was life. Again, can I explain that word was for you? Was continuing life. It's important, isn't it? It's really important. And the life was continuing the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, and I add, will not overcome it. So by both life and light, John is telling us, emit, come forth from Him. No other source, no other source comes forth from Him who is God. Again, this is so similar and reminiscent of what we read in Genesis when, when God, the Word, speaks, let there be light. But again, it, it makes it clearer by identifying who the one who speaks as the Word of God is, who was God before the foundation of the world and is, of course, God Himself, Jesus again. So John in, concludes his actual introduction to his gospel in verse 14. And again, most of you Sunday school students will know how this all ends because for the Greek, some of them might be still going, well, this, okay, this logic, this reason, is, this is human. This is, yes, but it's, it's maybe the human mind. It's maybe how we collectively come up to our understanding of these things. And John wants to make it very clear, and he does in verse 14 where he says this, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son of God, Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so what John is declaring is that this Word of God left His place in heaven with the Father and the Spirit, and as one commentator said, very famously said, and He moved into the neighborhood. I love that. Eugene Peterson's, uh, some call it a translation, I'll call it a commentary, called The Message. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. It was the idea. And this is, of course, speaking of the incarnation of Jesus, Son from the Father, the very Word of God in the flesh. So now, if someone is new to the Bible or newish, this teaching so far, I would hope, would be helpful. Right? It would be helpful to give you a little bit of background about this Word of God, the Bible being the Word of God. But if last week it was clear that, yes, the Bible is the story of God, who He is, what He's done, what He's going to do because of the things that we looked at and the verses that we studied. How is it clear that the Bible is the Word of God? So let me share an illustration with you that I, I hope um, will be helpful. And I, I read it and borrowed it from my, one of my favorite pastors. Everyone who comes to Rock knows that I, you know, who's my favorite pastor? Tim Keller, right. So in one of his sermons before, and I don't know if it was related to this exact subject actually, but he, he used this illustration and I think it's a good one. Uh, he tells the story about the movie called The Sixth Sense. Anybody seen that movie? <laughs> it's an older movie. Um, it, it, it's a bit scary, okay, I've got to be honest with you. It's about the paranormal. So as a pastor, I'm not sure I should be recommending it. 
but, but actually, come on, it's, it's, it's an interesting movie. I'm not even going to suggest that it's maybe a good movie. Uh, it's about a boy who's got an interesting problem, but one of his most famous lines in the movie is, I see dead people. Okay, so, uh, but here's the thing about this movie that I hope will illustrate this point. Um, here's the thing, it becomes, uh, it's not because this movie uh, is really about good acting. I mean, the lead actor is Bruce Willis. <laughs> okay, so there's, there's no Academy Awards for this movie that I'm aware of, right? Um, truly, but <clears throat> I, I, I really like him, but, but here's the thing, right? He's had a couple of good movies, okay? So one, the one about the building, whatever. That was pretty amazing. But the thing about this movie is this. It's, it's about the really, really dramatic ending. It, it is one of the most surprising endings in many movies, and that's what caused it to spread. This is before viral, t what we have today in, in uh, Twitter and so forth. It became really, really popular because of its surprise ending. And so, the, as Tim Keller put it, it's a movie you can only see twice. You can only watch this movie twice, and the reason is once you know the ending of this movie, well, the next time you watch it, you're going to be going, oh, yeah, well, yeah, that, that, well, I know how it ends. But you're going to still want to keep watching because you're going to be seeing all the clues and you're going to be realizing how dumb you were for not seeing it coming. <laughs> I'm not saying you're dumb in the way that you read the Bible, but there's something there, okay? And so the deal is this. This is a spoiler alert. If you haven't watched the movie, sorry, not sorry. Bruce Willis's character is dead from the beginning of the movie. From the very first scene. But you don't realize it. And yet he's standing in front of the little boy and the boy's going, I see dead people. It's a clue, okay? It's a clue. Here's the thing, when you go back and we watch it, one of the scenes is he's with his wife and you notice it the second time that you're there. He's looking at her and he's talking to her and she's saying things but she never looks at him. Nobody ever looks at him. So the point is, once you know the ending, you go to the earlier scenes of the movie and you say, ah, I get it. I truly, truly get it. But the deal is, you can never look at that movie again and not see these things. You can't see it. Same thing is true with the Word of God. Same thing is true with the Word of God, and, and, and it's necessary, hear me here this morning, that the Spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit, is revealing this to you. You can't not, when you know that Jesus is the Word, you know that He is the Word, not see Him in every book, in fact, in every chapter of the Bible. I bought a book, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, because I'm a preacher, right, and I need to know these things, uh, seeing Jesus and preaching Jesus through the Old Testament. And I'm like, What? Okay, I better read that book because I don't know if that's terribly clear to me. Is it clear to you? Well, we now know, having seen that he is the word, that we can see him speaking in Genesis 1. But let me give you a couple of Old Testament examples. The story of Noah and the ark. Now, there's a story for you, right? Uh, who, who was it who made that into a really bad movie, okay, um, recently, right? It's a story of Noah and the ark. It only really makes sense. People like to criticize that story. It never really happened. Okay, well, the Bible says it did, but it makes sense only when we see it in light of the overarching narrative story of God whose plan it is to save humanity from judgment through the faithfulness of, listen, one man. Like, God, you're going to wipe out the whole planet? What are you doing? What kind of a God would do that? 
The faithfulness of one man saves his family, and quite frankly, if you believe the Bible, is why you and I are here today. That's the story. So when the flood comes and destroys the earth, the ark is the salvation of Noah and his family, Jesus. It's a picture of exactly what he will do. The story of Moses, who we've always been talking about last week, and the Exodus is a classic. It's a story of a man who, look, you know the original story, he's adopted into royalty and then run out of the kingdom. He becomes a shepherd, oh really, who goes on to deliver his people from the bondage of slavery. He becomes a mediator between his God and his people. These people, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, are warned by God to sacrifice a a spotless lamb and wipe the blood of the lamb over the door to be spared God's judgment. After God judges the Egyptians, Moses leads Israel through the waters of the Red Sea and they embark on a journey to, as we talked about last week, the promised what? Land. It's just remarkable. That story only comes alive, only makes, again, real sense if we see it in light of the fact that, like Moses, Jesus lived in a kingdom called heaven, was sent down to earth and served as a mediator and deliverer for all of humanity by sacrificing himself, his own life, that all who believe in him might be spared God's wrath. The Exodus, then, was a foreshadowing of God's plan to save humanity through one man, Jesus Christ. I mean, go ahead. Now that you've heard this, go ahead. Read your Bibles. Like I asked you to do last week, start in John 1 in the New Testament and just read one chapter. And just stop for a second and think about these things. Let the Holy Spirit of God show you Jesus and the plan of God in every chapter. Then go back to Genesis 1 and do that in the Old Testament. A remarkable change will happen. So that's one reason why I believe it's really clear that the Bible is the Word of God from cover to cover. He is a person, He is the Word of God incarnate, and He is also the one who spoke creation into existence. Well, one other thing I think we need to look at today is this. For many skeptics and non-Christians, hearing you and I say the Bible is the Word of God, (laughs) it no longer has any credibility with most people, does it? You know, you can walk up and say, the Bible's the Word of God. Tap you on the head and go, yeah, thank you, right? Some of you who are here today um, will have heard of the name Billy Graham. Anybody heard of Billy Graham? Um, some of you will also know that he was one of the most gifted evangelists, not the only one, but one of the most gifted evangelists and preachers whose crusades saw millions and millions and millions of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. I was a two-month, three-month-old um, Christian in Toronto and went down to the CNE, the Canadian National Exhibition, and heard him preach. Actually, the main reason why I went was because Paul Henderson was going to be there giving his testimony, just confessing. Billy Graham was powerful. I'd only heard a few Protestant preachers up until that time because I was raised Catholic. The man was powerful. Great orator. Commanded your attention. Knew his Bible. Now, those of you who knew him, you will know that he popularized a certain phrase, and he would say it as soon as he'd pick up his big King James Version Bible, trust me, it was, 
he would pick that up and he would say three words before he would utter anything else. What were those three words? The Bible says... You have to give Billy a lot of credit for that. It was his trademark. He popularized that saying as a preacher, more so than anyone else. And, and he meant it in the best way. What he meant to say by saying the Bible says was to say that the Bible is God's Word. I stand behind it. It's all I've got. The Bible can be trusted. And the Bible has authority. There's a great word, right? Uh, it's such an awesome word in our world and culture today, isn't it? Now, as I said to you before, I'm a baby boomer. We were the original rebels against authority, okay, back in the 50s and 60s, okay? So don't you millennials try to take credit for that. <laughs> I loved Billy Graham. I really did. I, I respect him. He was a man of God, is a man of God. Um, but I think a lot of people in the church took that phrase who didn't have the grace and the mercy that God had given to Billy Graham in his use of that, and people knew it when he said that. He wasn't trying to thump you with the Bible. But then people in the church started to do that. It was like, well, the Bible says that's sin, and therefore you're a sinner, and nice talking to you. Produced a bit of a backlash, don't you think? So again, I think today, in our world today, when people hear the Bible is the Word of God, they hear that also, the Bible says. So let me gently put it this way to you, that maybe we could look at it this way, Christian, a little fresh look. I'm not saying that's bad. Billy was right. But how about we look at it this way and simply say, you know what? The reality is the Bible actually doesn't say anything. It's, it's an inanimate object. It's leather-bound at best. <laughs> paper with ink on it, but God does, Moses does, Isaiah does, Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do, Peter, and James, and Paul, oh, let's not forget Jesus. They speak, they write, and they talk and speak God's words. The author of Hebrew put it this way beautifully, begins in Hebrew chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, said, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. I, I love again this, this very important thing. The word His is not in the original language. It's been put in by the translators because it's assumed. Well, of course, it's, but read it again. It's like, long ago, at many times, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these days speaks by son. It's, it's like he's a language. <laughs> it's like he's a language. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he has created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint. You and I are created in the image of God. No, he is the exact imprint because he is God of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of the word of his power. So there are dozens and dozens of other ways that we could show that the Bible is the word of God, and this very verse highlights two of them. In the Old Testament, we read consistently, consistently, thus says the Lord, or the King James, thus saith the Lord, right? That's, that sounds better, doesn't it? I like that. And, and, or, and, or this, this is the word of the Lord to the prophet, or spoken through the prophet, right? We also know that God spoke to Moses on a mountain and literally 
wrote with, quote, the finger of God, the Ten Commandments. So he didn't just speak, but he used a finger of God to actually write on the tablet the Ten Commandments. Jesus, of course, spoke as well. We know that from the Gospels. We know His words. People love His words. Sometimes elevate His words over all other words. Shouldn't be doing that because all other words are His words, as we will see. But He also spoke to Paul on the road to Damascus, right? He also spoke to Paul. Paul says and claims all of the words that Paul said and wrote, that Jesus continued to reveal Himself to him and speak to him to do these things and write these things. His strongest declaration, as I was alluding to, is our point number three, the word is the authority, is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where it says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture... Paul speaking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. In those days at that time, there were few New Testament scriptures or writings going around, so he's primarily talking about the Old Testament is profitable for these things. But it, it's, it's clear from the other writers of the New Testament that they considered Paul's writings scripture and vice versa. And so the Bible, of course, affirms it, that it's word of God. And so the scripture is literally translated well here in the ESV. It is breathed out by God. It is the breath of God. Again, giving us a clear understanding that it is inspired and it is revealed as revelation that comes from God himself. This is why we say the Bible is the word of God. And here it is why it has authority. There's a good word for our day and age, I'm sure, right? Everyone, everyone in this room, you love authority? You, you love the idea of authority? You submit to authority all the time, right? Yeah. You submit to the elders of the church who are in authority over you, don't you? Yeah. Okay, sign up at the back, please, because... No, that's, that, that's a challenging word in our culture today, isn't it? It's a hugely challenging word. So let me ask you this. What authority do you go to to help you with the biggest decisions or struggles in your life? Where are you going for that? We've all got them. What authority? The authors of the book that I mentioned earlier said this about their generation, which again I suggest to you is true of everyone who is living today in our connected world. They, they, this is a quote from their book. They said this, 60% of millennials seek out news and analysis online. I am not a millennial, but any of you who know me know I really do like Facebook. And I'm on it, as my wife would tell you, too much. Okay? So we're, we're all connected. Come on. You cannot be in our world and culture today not be there. Fully 94% of those surveyed uh, millennials own a smartphone, are connected to the internet. They are far less, listen, likely to trust official sources and corporations and far more likely to seek and trust information from their friends. They love the idea of crowdsourcing. Every single one of you is in the room today who has a smartphone. You have apps on your phone like something called TripAdvisor. Do you know why they call it TripAdvisor? Who's the advisor? The crowd. Apparently, it's the crowd. Many years ago when I was in my business life, um, I was in charge of marketing for JVC, the stereo company, and I was living in Toronto, and I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to put an ad into one of the audio magazines in that day, you know, to promote JVC, like, you know, promote our product. And we had a budget for it, whatever. And I met with a sales rep, 
And he said to me, he said, hey, Glenn, that's great, uh, quarter page across this, half page across this, but listen, if you buy a full page, full color ad, we'll do a really good review on one of your products. Like, at the time, I'm sitting there going, like, and I'm a young Christian at the time, I'm going, okay, this sounds wrong, <laughs> but <laughs> we used to call it payola, right? You pay for good reviews. You pay. Fr friends, do you trust everything you read out there? Do you trust the crowd? But that's what it's gotten to in our world today. And so the question again is this, where can you find the truth? Listen, about who you are in light of who God is and what he has done. Well, Jesus told us, and he told his disciples in Matthew 28 when he said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Trust me. So listen, you've lived with me, you've seen me, my life, you've seen my death, you've seen my resurrection, I'm right here in front of you right now. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's a lot behind that word authority there. Of course it means Jesus has power. Of course it means he and the Father have the ultimate authority and power over all of life, over you, over me, over the creation of the world. But friends, what about if we saw that word today as we close this way? Maybe a little differently, and I hope it will encourage you. What if we saw that word this way? Author. Itty. Certainly it does mean that Jesus has the power and that he reigns over everything. But we have also learned that he authored the world. He spoke this very world into existence. He's authored our place in it, and frankly, he's authoring our very lives. And frankly, he will author your life in the way that he has desired to redeem and restore your life if you will give yourself to him, your whole life to him. Who better to listen to or to go to for real purpose and real meaning in your lives today? Peter was in a bit of an argument in Acts chapter 3 with some religious leaders. <laughs> and he had this to say to them. But listen, guys, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer, a substitute, a liar, to be granted to you. And you look at this, you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, and we are witnesses to that. Do you think they took the Great Commission seriously? They did. And they're revealing him as the author. The author of Hebrews also refers to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. And finally, I'll leave you with the words of Jesus, where he said these very important words, and in this context, I hope you will see it afresh. Man shall not live by bread alone, but he will live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is the nourishment that you need. That is the nourishment that I need 
Friends, the Bible is the story of God. It is the story of God. And His story is the Word of God. He has authored all of it for us, and to use Jesus' words that we will read next week, simply is this. Jesus' invitation to His earliest disciples was this. Come and see. Come and see. We will continue next week in the Gospel of John, in the Bible, as we hear Jesus say, come and see. Come and see. Pray with me, would you?